Are you ready for the UK's best political podcast, Tory Radio? Your number one. Today it's my great pleasure to be talking to the former lobbyist, pollster, founder of Comres, Andrew Hawkins. Andrew, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for inviting me, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure. Now, I think I'm right in saying that, that not too long ago, uh, Comres was acquired by Insights firm Savanta. So for someone involved in politics for so long, not wanting to make you feel old in any way, did it feel uh, the right time to hand over the reins of the company you founded? Yes, it did. Um, very very much so. And, and I, it, I've learned so much running Comres, um, so much about starting a business, so much about, about growing uh, and, and running a business. And I realised that after 17 years... Of, of being in the game um, you you go from being you go from being an, an entrepreneur to being a manager without realizing it mm. and uh, I the management bit um, is a necessary evil but I, I just love starting things and growing things um, and I just felt that I've been there and done that so there, there was a there was a push factor um, and, and also growing a business is exhausting you you've got to keep reinventing yourself got to keep reinventing the concept um, keep changing, transforming what you're doing, which is which can be great fun, but um, it, it, I've done it for long enough. Mm. The pull factor was that the having having watched lots of my friends dispose of their of their businesses, which were often often regarded as their babies, mm. um, I, I had come across very few people who'd managed to, to do it successfully, and I just felt with Savanta that the guys running Savanta, I clicked with immediately. Um, they have they have been incredibly good throughout the whole process. I never imagined it was it would be as as enjoyable a process as it as it has been in the end. Um, and I'm just so very grateful that I, I found as good a partner as, as Savanta. Mm. So so it's all worked out incredibly well. I think that was back in uh, 2019 when you did that. Some may say, even though it's you know getting on for only a, a couple of years later, we live in a very different world. COVID's arrived, hasn't really gone yet. Culture wars are said to be you know sort of the next big battleground. How would you assess the state of politics here in the UK? I think I think that that, that COVID has has masked the fact that we haven't really moved on from the sort of the foundational dynamics of Brexit, which are still very much in evidence today. And to be sure, politics is in a very, very different place than it was even five years ago. But some of those, and I think some some of the big tectonic shifts that Brexit laid bare are still very much in in evidence mm. and if you if you take for example the the state of the conservative party today um it, 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 if there is a sense that that the the remain tendency if i can call it that has been vanquished it's it's there under the surface it's it's not very not very far under the surface and and to to a large extent they were the same challenges that Margaret Thatcher had, that John Major had, that David Cameron had. It's always a question of, of emphasis rather than a binary choice between this wing of the party or that wing of the party. And more than ever, I'm aware of, of the fact that all political parties are coalitions in, in, mm. in of themselves. And so the emphasis may be a bit more, you know, the wind might be in the in the sails of, of the Brexiteers for the time being, but I suspect that that will change over time. With with Labour, on the other hand, um, goodness me, what a what a challenging place they're in, what a mess they're in. <laughs> um, 
and the the Corbyn, the craziness of of, of Corbynism uh, over the last few years ha- has has just muddied the waters so much that that when the left turn around in the in the face of electoral disaster and say the party isn't left wing enough. Mm. Their, their claims are given all the more credibility by the fact that Jeremy Corbyn did so well, of course, in 2017. Um, uh, but ultimately, it all it does is is it it, it it obfuscates, it masks the fact that Labour is is two parties. It's this sort of um, out this sort of metropolitan. Uh, urban metropolitan, um, uh, highly educated, um, largely focused around the southeast party, which is in charge of of of, uh, of this party, and then you've got the, the the countryside at large where they're hemorrhaging support. Um, so all of all of that is a is a very different place from where any of the parties were in 2015. You, you mentioned uh, two subjects uh, I'd like to delve in a little bit deeper. Obviously, Brexit, that happened actually quite a long time ago, really, in, in terms of uh, yeah. politics. Some have now suggested that purely on, on the success of, of, of the UK's vaccination programme alone, many of those in favour of Brexit you know, have had their, some of their claims proven right. Do you think that's fair? I think, I think people on both the Remain and Leave side will be looking for evidence to justify the position that they took, to be honest, and and, and the vaccination program is a classic example of that. In where, in that, in that, of course, Brexit is much wider than than just the, the vaccination. So the the motivation for people to vote leave was was much wider than obviously they didn't they didn't anticipate the, that issue being one of the areas of potential benefit of being outside the EU but if they had have done they would have pointed to that but it's but it's it's much more complicated than that it's about it's about attitudes to to the nation state it's about attitudes towards independence about self-determination about controlling borders uh, about Britain's role in the world uh, and as a as a great ambition to be a great trading nation um, so Brexit is about more than that uh, but also the vaccination program itself is in a sense the wrong thing to focus on because member states as i understand it were not obliged to take part in the eu mm. joint procurement um program um, but clearly uh, it it will have it will have cemented views it may have reinforced the views of people who were perhaps reticent or pragmatic leavers in the wake of the referendum even if they didn't it didn't vote leave and i think it it makes all the all the harder the arguments that that people make for example in scotland to to say we would we would have a referendum or we would make have some sort of attempt to to get an independent scotland back into the eu i think this is just a much harder case to make and i suspect that the more distance we get from 2016 and the referendum Mm. the harder it will be for for sort of continuity remain, if I can call them that, to to make their case. Uh, and then let's look at the, the Labour Party. Obviously, uh, a lot of people in various uh, areas of the UK uh, went to the polls yesterday. Uh, one of the, the big results uh, already in, as as we uh, record this, is uh, the Hartlepool uh, by-election. You know, on that, one one Labour source supposedly said, "Just because we've stopped pissing in the bath." 
doesn't mean people want to jump in with us straight away. Do you think uh, you know, that literally is one of the best summations of where the Labour Party is at the moment? It's, it, it's, it does sum it up, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it, the, I mean, Labour have got themselves into a, into a terrible bind because the people who are pulling the strings, the people who are, who are designing the party's identity or defining its identity at the moment are metropolitan, urban, southerners, and they are divorced, as divorced from their northern support base. So, so totally uh, the opposite to me, then. As they were in the run-up to 2015 in Scotland. And it's, it's the same dynamic. I think the issues are slightly different today. And every, every party, it doesn't, it's, it's not, not, not peculiar just to mm. Labour, but any political party that's been in, in power in certain seats for too long gets fat, bloated, lazy, and takes its support base for granted. Mm. And that's been the case here. And, 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 and what, what this is showing to me, if I, if I were, God forbid, uh, to be advising the Labour Party on their strategy at the moment, I would be, I would be urging them urgently to drop the identity and victim politics and to and to to reconnect with their support base. But people just most people simply want to get on, and look after their family. They want a better job. They want a better life. And Labour has somehow managed to get into this fix where it's almost in their political interest to keep people in their place rather than provide them with a ladder to get to get a better life for them and their children and once they once they realize that that's 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 catnip for for labor voters mm. then they'll 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 drop all of this nonsense and um uh, and and get on with the job of of looking after ordinary working people um but so they've i think they've got a they've got an identity problem i think they've got a branding problem and i think they've got a fundamental culture problem within their own party that they're going to have to address, and 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 simply getting getting rid of a leader is not going to not going to succeed in in uh, in, in achieving any of that. Do you, do you think that will happen? Do you think they will try and get rid of their leader? I, th- I think Starmer's in a pretty in a pretty strong place, and and I think history will look back on Corbyn as being a a kind of crazy aberration. Um, the, the, I mean, the, I think the the Labour needs to needs to look at this as a late twenty twenties project that they've got to use the next few years as as the Tories did post ninety seven hmm. to 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 get their act together to to get their story straight with voters uh, and to to rebuild from the from the bottom up and you you can't do that if you just if you keep swapping leaders every time you have an electoral defeat. Hmm. Well, well, you're not going to have time to uh, be giving the uh, Labour Party uh, advice because you've never been one to rest on your laurels. You've launched a new platform called, I think, Democracy 3. Can you tell listeners a little bit about it and why you decided to launch it? Sure. Well, it really goes back to the experience of of working alongside um, lots of lots of of clients who were mm. running often small campaigns that were that were poorly funded, um, and watching with frustration some of these really great causes were just hamstrung by 
um, lack of lack of funding uh, or lack of expertise. And and I've also worked with some of the online with some of the digital activism platforms too. And and I, I could see that that the that the current provision of um, of expertise uh, for for things like online petitioning, um, I. Are unsatisfactory in 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 several respects. I mean, one one is this that this pretense that that signing an online petition in itself, in and of itself, is going to change anything, and, mm. and it, it clearly not. And I've 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 triggered my own personal online petition for a, a local planning issue, and to my horror, the platform hosting it had a big donate button on our campaign page, and so my my elderly neighbours were clicking on this and giving money, thinking they were giving money to our campaign mm. against the local planning application, when in fact they were giving money to the to the online platform, <laughs> which which I thought was disingenuous at best. Mm. And um, and there are other uh, other aspects of digital activism which I think have, have been hijacked by the left. And there, the, what I what I wanted to do was to was to create an opportunity for for modern digital campaigning but from not in a total vacuum and i'd uh, i've been horrified at looking at uh, for example people putting online petitions to cancel people or to get a, a head teacher sacked and this this kind of thing mm. so i wanted to set up something which was values based that was that seeks in an unapologetic way to promote the common good mm. that promotes for example that recognizes the value of the free market um, but especially the value of small businesses recognizes the family as a basic building block of, of society that seeks to promote people being kind to one another not cancelling one another and so that's what we've done so we brought together the the concepts of of online petitioning with crowdfunding but the crowdfunding that goes on on our platform on democracy 3.0 is is intended to raise money for the campaign rather than for us or for us to decide uh what we're going to use people's money that they donated to campaign on um and that's that's the difference that we're 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 more transparent um i believe we can be more effective as well and the neat trick with democracy 3.0 is that if if there's an individual with a with a great idea a, a kind of uh, a, a a modern day sane version of, uh, of a kind of Greta Thunberg type figure who's, who's campaigning on something for the common good. This is not to cast aspersions on the sanity of Greta Thunberg, you understand, mm -hmm. but somebody who comes up with a with a brilliant idea, but how, who is an individual? If they came up with an idea that raises a million quid, we then pledge to help them spend that money. Mm. On professional campaign expertise and they are unlikely to have the knowledge that it requires to contract with say a public affairs firm mm. uh, or a firm of lawyers or lobbyists or whatever or well, we've got that knowledge and expertise and we know the industry really well and uh, and, and we think that there's a great there's a great win-win a win for the public affairs industry in having access to more clients mm. and a win for people with a great idea do you, do you think there's a, a call for this because people have been feeling powerless and and if that's the case why do you think why do you think that is well it's a great irony isn't it that, that in an era of greater communication than ever mm. before that people feel out of that their politicians are out of touch and it may be that i think there is a, a mismatch of expectations versus the exposure 
uh, that people have to the way that politics is is handled. And there's one, if I can give you one example of a campaign which is which was just this week in the last few days gone live on Democracy 3.0, uh, which is which harks back to the 2015 Conservative Manifesto commitment to introduce age verification for adult online content, and the the government came within within a fortnight, literally to within a fortnight in 2019 of introducing this, when when it got pulled and was this was in the in the latter days of 2019, when you recall the whole sort of Brexit stuff trundling through mm-hmm. in the run up to the 2019 election, it got caught up in all of that. Well, if voters felt let down by the failure to implement the 2015 manifesto commitment you can understand why given that there's there's much more transparency around process now mm. um, and uh, um and and people are much closer to to politicians as well and that, that may work that may work in politicians favor and I, th- I think actually every politician has to be on social media it has to engage with with their constituents in a way that they they didn't have to when you and i were uh young lads starting out in our in our careers um but that comes with with a challenge it means that if politicians don't do what they say they're going to do and the and the consequences of that become obvious as they have done with the sexualization of of children and it's very often you know, the, the the chief executive of the british film um the bbfc british Board of Film Classification has has made the case themselves and saying that that a large proportion of of children well under the age of ten have accidentally stumbled across pornography online. Um, this stuff is very visible to people, and people will make the connection back to the Tories' failure to enact what they promised to in twenty fifteen. So that's just one example of of where disillusion understandably sets in and people feel disconnected i think there's always been a degree there's a natural level of discontent with with politicians but in an era of of transparency and demands of transparency it's become mm. it's become ever more apparent we live in an age of, of citizen democracy in the same way that we live in an age of citizen journalism mm. and uh, and we're simply trying to provide a platform to provide the infrastructure for that to to take shape you mentioned money. Money's always been needed to to influence and campaign. You know, as, as as a lobbyist, I've seen you know work for large organisations with large budgets and small organisations with small budgets. Why do, why do you think money makes a difference? Money money is the the catalyst for all of this stuff, and I I think that's probably always been the case. But if you, it's the nature of of influence today. And if you go back long enough, I remember in the early nineties. The, the mantra was that the quieter the campaign, the more effective it was likely to be. And all that seems a far cry from, from today where, where image is everything, where, where perception is reality. And I think there are three areas where, where money makes a real, a real difference. It, it, you, need, you need money to provide evidence for your case, to do the research into the case. That's what Comres was, was all about. You need money to buy the best research, to, to develop those arguments and you need money to to get through the right channels to to buy the time on social media to to buy the newspaper ads whatever it whatever it is it's it's no longer about paying somebody to have a conversation with somebody they they probably know although david cameron 
and Greensill um, probably probably do think it's still largely about that. And in a minority of cases, that, that may even work. But by and large, influence these days is exercised in a more transparent way. But that takes money, and it takes money to, to work up the reason why some bit of policy needs to change mm. and to understand how most effectively that can be that case can be put across. It sounds like you almost you, you want to democratise the, the, the lobbying process. So does that mean you're actually looking to disrupt the lobbying industry? What, what does this look like in your eyes? I think I'd, I'm not looking to disrupt the lobbying industry as such. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to I'm looking actually to create more opportunities for the lobbying industry um, by by enabling ordinary people it is and that 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 phrase that term you use there democratize it is exactly that that i'm that i want to be able to do i want to i want to give an ordinary punter with Mm. a great idea potentially access to the same influence or lobbying firepower as a multinational would have and it seems to me unfair and unfortunate that that's not the case at the moment now if i were running a lobbying company i'd be looking at this thinking to myself you know, great. Let's let's partner with D three and 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 win some more business and use this as a means of of furthering our own clients' interests by involving more people uh, in in having a stake in what in what we're doing. Um, so disrupting influence, perhaps. But I want to work very much with the existing providers that are out there because I think the I believe that that the that the levers of influence we've got, these professional levers of influence, the PR industry, the polling industry, and the lobbying industry mm. in the UK are the best in the world. We've avoided the kind of grubbiness that we've seen on the side mm. of, of the Atlantic. I think it's a more a more interesting and more mature market than is on than we see in continental Europe. I think that the lobbying industry has embraced the opportunity of being broader than just being just about politics and public affairs. The, the use of social media, for example, is largely embraced. Um, and this is a fantastic global sector for us. So why wouldn't I want to go with the grain? You, you, you mentioned one specific campaign. Can you give listeners a bit more of a flavour of other campaigns that you're enabling at the moment? Yes, sure, sure thing. We've we've got three campaigns that are live on the site at the moment. Um, one of those is uh, being run for an APPG. It's called the APPG on Dying Well. It's headed up by by Danny Kruger mm-hmm. and Miriam Cates, and uh, and that's that's anticipating a parliamentary battle on assisted suicide, and uh, and looking to um, to generate support ahead of that. Uh, we've also got uh, a private individual's campaign, uh, which is uh, it's a very simple one. It's to try and persuade the the big um, drive-through fast food outlets to be required to print car registration numbers on their packaging in order to to nudge people not to throw their KFC uh, or McDonald's um, wrappers out of the, out of the car window. Uh, which is a really interesting campaign, and mm. I, I think is, is uh, uh, has a lot of a lot of potential. And um, the third area is on age verification itself, uh, and we've got the Queen's speech, uh, uh, which is likely to uh, make mention of a bill on digital harms. So um, that's uh, an area where I think the government needs to be held to account for 
ensuring that the the kind of scheme that it had in mind in 2019, which got pulled, will be the one which will eventually uh, uh, be uh, be implemented. And for for that campaign, I mean, that's a, again we're learning as we go, but it's really interesting to see how how schools are, are very excited about that. Um, we're talking to bullying charities, we're talking to single parent charities, um, as well as. Uh, other you know, the, the usual suspects, I guess, of of children's charities. Um, it's a, just a great a great example of cross party, um, multi organisational coalition coming together to to push something for for the common good. How can people get involved or just find out more? Well, I'd, uh, it would be great for for people to to have a look at the website. Mm-hmm. So that the the URL is democracy three, uh, that is spelled out T R T H R W E democracy three dot org, um, or you can find us on on uh, on Twitter or Facebook, and just have a little nose around the site, and and you'll you'll get a, a feel for that from maybe some of the intro videos um, as to what we're about, as to to to, uh, to what our values are, um, and and I. I I just welcome feedback from people as well, and I acknowledge that that this is this is not the final word in digital activism. But I'm hoping that what we're doing is going to be is going to be serving the community, um, giving people who currently don't have a voice an opportunity to to generate support, generate funding, and have an influence on the on the world around them. Um, I'm not looking to be the next. The next Bill Gates. Um, I, I just, I just want to, I just want to use my my experience and expertise and contacts and knowledge to to hopefully do some good. It sounds fascinating. I hope you can uh, spare some time and come back at a later stage and, and let let us know how it's all going. But in the meantime, Andrew Hawkins, thank you for talking to us today. Thanks very much indeed, Jonathan. Really appreciate the opportunity.